This is Whitley Strieber, and this is Dreamland. You've reached the edge of the world. Today we're welcoming to Dreamland A, one of our most frequent guests, and B, one of our most interesting guests, and C, this is his 10th anniversary edition of Dreamland. He has been on Dreamland, I think, 17 times in 10 years, something like that. His name, many of you will be familiar with, is Nick Redfern. He is very good at blowing people's socks off, and my socks are gone. I can't even find them. They've been blown off. How anti-gravity built the pyramids, and a little more. Nick is the author of more than 60 books, and that's saying just something. I've I've joked with Nick that he can write a book in the time it takes to sit down to read one, but they are wonderful books. The National and the NASA Conspiracies, the Men in Black, uh, Bloodline of the Gods, Pyramids and the Pentagon. We've I think we've talked in about most all of his books. Uh, not all of them, not all forty, but a lot of them. Uh, Unexplained. He's been on Ancient Aliens, of course, Monster Quest, all kinds of different things. So, and he's a big coast guest as well. Nick, welcome to Dreamland. Hey, Whitley. Thanks for having me on again. Well, it's a real pleasure to have you on, folks, and we're going to do audio today for two reasons. Uh, Nick's internet is screwed up, and I have what could safely be described as an allergy attack that you uh, you won't hear any sneezing, but if we did, did it on uh, video, you would see it. So we're going to do audio this week. The Lost Secrets of the Ancients, How Anti-Gravity Built the Pyramid, starts in a really interesting and terribly cool and unexpected place. Why don't we begin by talking a little bit about an interview you did with a man named Ray Bosch. Is that is how to pronounce his name? Oh, Boucher. Boucher, yeah, that, Ray Boucher. Boucher, It's yeah, conceivable Boucher. that I've had him on Dreamland, but if I haven't, I certainly will. Well, Ray is somebody who has been in the UFO field um, for 40-odd years, I think more than that even. Um, you know, I think like a lot of us, he got into this, you know, when we were um, young people. And um, over the years, he sort of looked into the UFO subject as well. And and as well as a ufologist, um, Ray is also a priest. Uh, that's his primarily um, role. And, um, and over the years, um, I had a few chats with Ray. And he told me um, this str- really strange story um, of how there was um, like a small organization or uh, sort of um, like a project, if you like, that was um, putting together um, a, a program, if you like, to try and summon up demons in, as a means to try and understand their power um, and you might say their technology, and and this for me was fascinating but bizarre. You know, the idea that the Department of Defense was um, was u- using funding um, to understand the natures of demonology and um, and use the 
the technology, if you like, or the powers um, to take on our enemies. And um, I mean, this sounds like something straight out of, you know, the X-Files or Lovecraft or something like that. It's insane. Um, it's but the it more, mm -hmm. but the insane. more he told me about it, you know, there was more data and I started to sort of look it into it even further and and just I was sort of like um, you know like a my jaw was just dropping um but but when he told me how how it was working and you know they were getting this funding and um and there was this angle if you like of a connection between um ufology and demonology um which is a pretty sort of uh, strange connection if you like <laughs> well, there is a connection mm -hmm. there is a yep. let's talk a little bit about the Collins elite and then we'll get into operation mm -hmm. often tell us about the well, Collins yeah. elite what are they yeah well yeah well the the Collins elite um when Ray um told me this story he said to me you know well, why don't you sort of you know go into it and see if you can find um, any more information, because Ray had a certain amount of data, um, but he'd, he'd gone about as far as he could. Um, and so he said to me, you know, well, here's some leads, and, um, you know, here's a place, here's a name, that kind of thing. And, um, and so I started to do that, and I got in touch with about seven or eight people who had previously been on this organization that they called the the Collins elite and um and it really was sort of a nickname um now as far as i know there is actually um a highly classified um title for the for the organization which isn't that big it's about 25 to 30 people as far as i know or or it was like that um but for security reasons, they used a nickname, uh, particularly so when I was writing the book, um, rather than give out the um, the the top secret, if you like, um, title. And so um, again, I started to look into this and was I able to speak to a number of people who essentially told me the. The same kind of story that that Ray had told me that there was deep in the um, Department of Defense there was this uh, group um, who were looking into some really strange things. Um, one of them told me and showed me this sort of huge collection of ancient books going back to sort of like the 1500s, 1600s to do uh, do with like um, demonology. I don't know where any of these um books came from but um you know they were sort of sort of things you'd seen like an old horror movie you know covered in dust almost like that it wasn't quite like that but you know you get the picture and um and this organization were perceiving uh, and maybe connect, uh, correctly they perceived that or thought that the the grays if you like of you was sort of something that themselves were 
demon, uh, demonic, um, which is, you know, a very strange and um, sensational um, thing that they were they were coming to. But that was their, their sort of thoughts. They felt that we, that the UFO subject is sort of really like a, a cover for, um, you know, to, to hide the UFO angle, uh, excuse me, to hide the demonology side by making it look like that um, this is extraterrestrial. And, now, um, just hold on a second, because there's something <clears throat> deeper there, I think. First of all, folks, we have not interviewed... Uh, uh, Nick on his book, Final Events. We have to do that. We had, it's on the secret government group on demonic UFOs and the afterlife. It's a very important book and we will do this. But getting back to the grays just briefly, I have a slightly different idea and I just want to throw it out there. I think that what we look at when we see the grays is a species or something that maybe once was a species, a physical species, that did essentially the same thing the U.S., the insiders in the U.S. government in the Defense Department are trying to do now. They came into contact with a deeply evil force in search of technology. And what we see now in the grays is what happens when you do that. The grays are the future if we are not very careful. Yeah, and I, I, I would uh, sort of like to, to tell the uh, the listeners, you know, that the this scenario of the Collins elite, um, you know, I'm not someone who is sort of, um, you know, I'm, I'm sort of full on with them. I'm not. For me... The reason why I wrote this book and um, and also the story within the anti-gravity book was simply because um, it was a fascinating story, you know, that the U.S. government being funded to to understand what demons are, you know, that the, yeah, which whether you yeah whether you go whether you go for the story or not, it's a it's a fascinating story, <laughs> you know. It's a, so I wasn't going to sort of. Um, you know, leave that one alone. That's that's really fascinating, and it also ties in with what you briefly mentioned, um, Operation Often. Now, Operation Often was kind of like um, the Collins Elite, but with one difference. Um, Operation um, Often was all about um, tr- the the started in the 1960s when the government um, started to work on all different sides of um, the paranormal, if you like, um, voodoo, um, demonology, um, all sorts of things, uh, apart from the UFO subject. And the, the Collins elite handled the UFO side of it, um, but everything else was pretty much done by Operation Often, and um, and there was a great deal of activity and and resurrecting um, you know souls and things like this, or trying to you know and trying um, trying to. Uh, this is the one thing that's really strange is that they tried to um, bring forward, if you like, the souls of CIA 
agents and um and the this the entire um aspect of it was supposedly that um you know could they resurrect the agents who've been working say twenty years earlier and to have them tell all the secrets that they knew, which is you know even more bizarre <laughs> that is but, really um, really bizarre mm -hmm. but you know they yes, come they don't understand this. You understand it better than any of them, and I do too. I'll tell you this about this, though. There's two things. One is, to a fly, flypaper looks inviting, and it doesn't look dangerous. That should be remembered at all times by people working in this area. And number two, there are entities that can't tell the truth. They can't. They always lie. And like, for example, uh, Nathan Twining told his son that one of the Roswell entities that survived the crash said they weren't interested in human beings. A lie. But he couldn't tell the truth. That wasn't possible for him because of how far he's gone. Okay. Uh, well, listen, Free Dreamlanders, why are we going to take a little break right now? We're going to take a break with Nick Redfern. Nick Redfern's book, his new book, is How Anti-Gravity Builds the Pyramids. But I suggest that you go to your, your favorite, maybe website, maybe Amazon or Barnes & Noble or somewhere like that, and just don't look for a specific book. Hit Nick, search on Nick Redfern. And you know, it's a cornucopia of fabulous stuff. I'm not going to say Nick doesn't sound like a genius, but he, he writes like one and it's so cool. All of it. How anti gravity built the pyramids is also way, way, way cool. And we're going to get into things like the mysterious platform at Baalbek and all kinds of stuff. Nick Redfernfortian.blogspot.com is his website. We will be right back. You know, the afterlife revolution is a funny book. It makes people happy, even though it's about the afterlife and thinking about crossing over. It made me happy to write it. And the reason it did was that I was actually in touch with Anne while I was writing it. And not only that, she proved it. She proved it clearly and completely. When you read the book, you'll see what I mean. You'll see why Dr. Gary Schwartz, who is one of the leading experts on the afterlife, considers it such an important book, why he wrote a foreword for it. Because this is about something real and incredible that we are told every day not to believe that we have souls and that we have an afterlife. Well, we do. We do. And the afterlife revolution is going to open the door for you so you're not going to be thinking to yourself, maybe I don't, when you do. And that's why it's a book of joy. Go on Amazon, take a look at the great reviews, and get yourself a copy. It's available for your Kindle. It's available in paperback. And there's an audio book read by me. And let me tell you something. You can hear something in my voice. People tell me that, and I think it's true. You know what it is? It's the inner joy that is part of me 
and has become part of me since this extraordinary thing happened. I have to say, Ann Streber was a remarkable person in this life, and she still is. Get it today. There it was. Uh, I put my engine off, turned, turned my lights off, and there's my car facing this thing, probably maybe 100 feet away. And this was something which was very strange, to, you can imagine. I sat there for probably 10, 15 minutes staring at it with her, and suddenly it, it floated off of the ground and lifted up. The entire black object with the red square in the middle lifted up, and it, it hovered over the road uh, maybe about 100 feet in the air. Not, not, not even that that's famed mathematician Ed Bell Bruno talking about the time that he encountered the visitors and came away with calculations in orbital dynamics that changed his career, saved a valuable satellite from burning up in the atmosphere, and fundamentally changed the way we handle satellite orbits. Only on unknowncountry.com and Dreamland do you hear something like this. Only here. So subscribe today. Unknown Country is a tremendous resource. And it's not just because of the wonderful things we have on offer to subscribers. It's the importance of keeping this resource alive. It is unique in the world. Go to unknowncountry.com and join us. Subscribe today. This is Whitley Strieber at Streamland. We're talking to Nick Redfern, how gravity built the pyramids. We were still on the college, Collins Elite and Operation Often and attempts to contact the souls of dead FBI and CIA agents, something I've heard about uh, too. I, I'm pretty sure that happened and happens. And to get to try to gain knowledge from them. And I know there is technology being developed by the other side because there are good guys over there too. I've got some of the good guys' technology in my left ear in the form of an implant. But my listeners know that story. We're not going to go into that now. Uh, now, you can read about it in a new world or listen to it if you listen, prefer to listen to books. Uh, let's, let's stay with Operation Often and attempts to go back into the past and figure out what technologies we have lost, essentially. Well, I mean, you know, there was a lot was done initially um, when Operation Often began and went on for several years. And, um, and some of the operations um, seem to have worked and others seem to be over the head of the people in the organization they you know they weren't really sure what they were doing um and they were hiring um you know people in the um uh, the fields of the occult and and hiring witches and people like that and um one of uh, if you know the name of Sybil uh, uh, Sybil Leake um well Sybil Leake uh, particularly in the 1970s was a very famous um witch and and she was brought into operation often and um and it's a sort of a very bizarre situation you know you go to work and um you work in sort of side to side with witches uh because of US national security 
Um, you know, it's one of those things that, well, it just could not be true, but it's one of those things that, that really is true, you know. Um, but yeah, they, they went into just about every aspect of the paranormal. And of course, what happened was what happens to a lot of people. You get a backlash and things start to go wrong and people fall sick and things like that. And um, and then after a while, the often people um, realized that, you know, they weren't really um, able to, you know, sort of um, be above them in any way at all. You know, it was a case that... Um, you know, the the human race was sort of, um, when it came to um, operation often, you know, these entities they were trying to um, contact, um, we were completely out of the picture. You know, we were just, we just weren't, you know, up to this. And particularly, as I said, when, you know, this issue of backlash, um, so many people who've dabbled um, rather than looked at all this, um, correctly um, but you know you start messing around and thinking it's all cool and fun um, you know that can be the worst thing to do <laughs> absolutely um, and, and, and so many people will tell you um, when they've done this they've looked into these things as did the operation often people and it does sort of like a, a blowback to you you know, and then people fall ill, you know, and um, they see shadowy things out of the corner of their eyes and things like this. And um, and it really gets um, sinister, you know. Yeah. Well, there are those of us who see shadowy things not out of the corners of our eyes, but in our faces. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I, I hear you. And I, I'm telling you, these were spiritually... Spiritual children playing with fire that they did not know burned. That is really the bottom line about all of this. And they have gotten plenty of us into deep trouble because they have tried to take this whole country and ultimately the whole species down a path from which there is no return, having not the faintest idea what they were actually doing because this aspect, the dark side of this, is real dangerous. It is entirely real. And like you have implied, it's corrosive. It's like a disease. When, you, when, when they in, interact with it, they can never get away again. And what they don't know, and because we're soul blind, most of us, not all of us, is that once they have touched this, after they die, they will still be its servant. They will never get away. That's the truth. So when you talk to some of these guys in the Defense Department who have been doing this, if you know what to look for, you can see that they know what has happened to them. It's very scary stuff. Very scary. All right. Well, yeah, you're right. I mean, I mean, if you look around at, um, you know, all this issue of the paranormal, um, nobody should be dabbling in it. You know, if you're going to get into it, do it in, um, 
you know, a down-to-earth um, way and and actually know what you're doing. And and that sort of um, is something that the Collins elite did not do properly. They kind of went into, I think, almost in kind of like in a gung-ho kind of way. And, and it certainly did not uh, work for some of them. For example, Ray... Um, told me that he was shown by his DOD friends or colleagues, I should say. Um, but um, Ray Boucher was told and shown these um, photographs of several people um, who died in the programs. And it was really weird because the three people had had like, um, like a dent in the side of their head. Uh, as if like something had just pushed it in, something invisible. And um, I didn't see the pictures, but Ray did see the pictures. And he, he that's how he described it, you know, as if somebody just got a hammer and slammed it into somebody's head. And um, and they closed the, that particular aspect down uh, because they couldn't understand or even control it. So. I'm looking at his website and I'm seeing... Ray Boucher, which is rayboucher.com, and I'm seeing an absolutely fascinating man here. I've got to interview him. Oh, he is? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, Forty in research, uh, all kinds of things. So you, of course, you knew well, about him, and you went, you went to the, went to the, to the, to the well, obviously. And we've all benefited from it. Um, yeah, actually, one of the things that I'll tell you that he's um, investigated um, you know, to a, a really extensive degree is the whole men in black um, phenomenon, you know, which and Ray's um, sort of thinks that, you know, this is tied in as well. It's not um, secret agents or government agents or anything like that. He thinks that um, the MIB are, are some sort of um, sort of a paranormal, dangerous type um, entity. You know, uh, I believe you wrote a book about the Men in Black, and we interviewed you. Yes, I did. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, it's a good but, book, uh, and it's a wonderful interview, too. So, folks, if you're subscriber do listen to it you should you know what you do is you you go into google and you just uh or on the search engine on the website either one and put in dreamland nick redfern and there's an absolute cornucopia of fabulous shows and loads of really fun books uh and, you know they're well, not fun in in the fun fun sense they're fun in the sense that they really make you think mm -hmm. Yeah, so, well, thanks, Whit uh, Whitley. And um, I think um, it, people might like to know that of all my research uh, with the men in black phenomenon, because I've done two books uh, on the sub that subject now, um, for me, there's, you know, there's the government agents um, that's look at, that are looking into the UFO subject. And then also you've got the, the weirder men in black where they're sort of these pale, gaunt, bulging eyes, creatures, if you like, with these, um, uh, the, the old style fedora hats and, and sometimes yeah. their face looks, their face almost looks like it's got makeup on because they do all this because they don't actually look completely human. And some people have said that when the MIB have been in the person's home, kind of like we just said, um, that the people who were 
targeted, they started to fall ill as well. And, um, you know, it was just a, a situation of spiraling and they had to sort of like cleanse the house um, because there was nothing else to do, really. You know, an entity from the dark side touched the mm-hmm. temple of a child at our yeah. cabin once. And you talked about those dents in the head. And he, it just touched, touched her briefly and a, an infection appeared that could not be cured. It didn't spread, but it could not be, could, there was nothing that could, the doctors couldn't find anything to cure it. And it, it, it went away after about two years, this little infection on the side of her head. And boy, I regretted that, that the, that the children had been near anything like that. But, it, you know, it did happen. I mean, the cabin was a very complicated place. It had, you know, there's a lot of good go- going on at the cabin, a lot of good. But that's not all that's there ever. You can't, you can't push the bad side away because if you do that, it gets, it only gets stronger and it comes back at you from another direction. You have to approach it, but never any, in any way except from within your own light. Within your own light. Nick Redfern's website is nickredfernfortian.blogspot.com. And it's almost as much fun to go on Amazon and just put in Nick Redfern. What a wealth of fascinating material. And, uh, and we're talking about how anti-gravity built the pyramids. And I promise you, this has been so fascinating talking about the dark side and the defense department. I, I swear I'm going to be a good boy and we will go on to the pyramids and all of that stuff in the past as soon as we get back. Here's a commercial we ran for our subscriber section back in December of 2004. Phenomenal material on the Coral Castle and it's still there. You can listen to this and so much more by subscribing to unknowncountry.com. He was just clear, perfect, everything you'd want in a human being, sharing this information and, and giving answers that were just blowing me away. That's George Nerens talking about John Leed Skalnan of Latvia. He speaks fluent Latvian, and he has met John, is a relation of Ed Leed Skalnan of Coral Castle fame. He has given us a fabulous interview for our subscriber section, just by way of letting you know how good it is. John Leed Scallon uses some of the same methods, hitherto secret, that Ed used in the building of the Carl Castle. You can only hear about this on unknowncountry.com in our fabulous subscriber section. I urge you, subscribe today. Keep this great website going. Get behind it and have a load of fun and great information in the process. Go to unknowncountry.com. Click on that subscribe tab today. We're talking to Nick Redfern, how anti-gravity built the pyramids. Wow. What a story you have been telling us about the struggles of people in modern times to deal with the dark side but let's let's go back into the deep past where do we start well you know where i want to start it this is sort of related <laughs> because it's in your press release uh the mayan story 
of the construction of the pyramids of the magician, pyramid of the magician, said to have been overseen by a small humanoid who could whistle large stones into place. Do you tell us about that small humanoid? Because we're dealing, when we deal with the dark side in this level, we're often dealing with small humanoid figures. So tell us about that story. Tell us that story. Well, yeah, this is actually um, a Mayan story and um, of the construction of what's known as the pyramid, pyramid of the magician. And it was said to be an overseen, uh, overseen by, a, uh, by a small humanoid which could um, whistle large stones into place. And, and so it's intriguing that this entity or this creature um, that could... Uh, raise these huge um, stones, uh, multi-toned ones, um, it sh- that it should be not a really a normal human, this sort of small um, dwarfish entity. Now, what's intriguing um, is that um, when we talk about um, uh, raising stones by whistling, I mean, if, if you think about that literally, people would say you cannot raise um, stones just by whistling. Or we'd be all be doing it all day, you know. <laughs> um, but what uh, we're talking about, um, a, a whistle, if you like, is sound. And what I think has happened, and I think this is absolutely correct. What I think is that over the centuries. Um, people have learned how to do this by using not so much just whistling, but what's called acoustics. And, um, and there are various different um, types of acoustics, but they, it all comes down to the fact that um, it's sound. And if you can uh, manipulate sound, you can do a lot of things. I mean, for example, um, totally different, but um, over the last few years, um, various uh, military agencies around the world have been um, sort of expanding um, what we would call like acoustic weapons, you know, to uh, fry people's brains and, um, yeah, a lot of things like that. Havana syndrome is what you're talking about. Yeah, I mean, um, there's been some really dangerous things, you know, um, have happened in the last few years where people have had, you know, really um, bad situations um, as a result of sound. And um, there's a lot of research now in this arena. And we also know that um, literally thousands of years ago, particularly at Stonehenge, that there's evidence that um, that the ancients may have been able to use sonics, if you like, um, in their, um, their their sort of uh, religious um, events, and as a means to um, enhance um, uh, connections, if you like, with supernatural entities. So uh, even with Stonehenge, way back then, there's this. Um, angle of acoustics and i think ancient man had fought knew far much about acoustics than we do and uh, and part of it was the issue of, of levitation 
Yeah, you know the this question of of the use of acoustics and and other means to cause levitation yeah. interests me very much. You know, I had Paul Eno on the show a couple of months ago. Oh yeah, mm-hmm. you know Paul and, and listeners do. Yeah, too. I know he, Paul. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, he talks about a time when he was a a novitiate. I I don't know what they call him. And he was a young guy studying to be a priest, Catholic priest, and his job was to be the assistant of an exorcist. And, you know, and they threw him out later because he got interested in the too interested in the paranormal. I mean, what do they expect? You know, they give him a job like that. He's going to get interested in the paranormal. Anyway, that's neither here nor there. He, at one point, in a room full of witnesses, saw a woman who they believed to be possessed rise up out of a wheelchair. And the exorcist simply said, go push her back down. So this is real. And there's Joseph of Cupertino Mm -hmm. in the 17th century, whose story is attested to by... Hundreds of people. I mean, he he levitated. He levitated. It is real. And, you know, there's another thing. Uh, there's a book by a man named Maladoma Patrice Somme called Water in the Spirit. Uh, Somme was, he's passed on recently, was one of the great shamans in modern African history. Uh, in fact, for subscribers, there's a, a little piece I did about him in the uh, special interview section. I, I did about him, not with him, because unfortunately he died right before I discovered him. But he he talks about seeing gravity defied at his mm-hmm. g- grandfather's funeral, where things came up off the floor and all kinds of stuff happened. And they can't do it anymore, but it's at that time there were still people alive who knew these secrets. What do you think it is? Yeah, you, yeah. How does it work? Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a lot of stories from around the world, you know, with with levitation. Um for example, in the UK in the Middle Ages, uh with witchcraft, you know, it was known that uh, witches could sort of levitate as well. And um and so, you know, you've got this sort of like a cross, if you like, of science, religion, and, um, you know, sort of splicing them together, if you like. You know, one of the things that we do that's such a profound mistake, I always think, is that we try to make the past look like what we understand the world to be mm. now. Why don't we start talking about the Sphinx and tell us a little bit about what's actually going on there. There's a wonderful chapter in this book called The Sphinx. Not at all mm-hmm. what it seems to be. Well, let's that, not at all. That's right. Well, yeah, I mean, everybody pretty much, you know, has seen pictures, um, the Sphinx, and, uh, you know, if they've been um, able to, you know, actually gone there. Um now, what's intriguing is not so much um, the size of the Sphinx, but the age of it. Um, and um, what we know now is the uh, this angle, uh, like for, for example, Robert Schock, um, who has um, presented a really, really good um, 
situation where it, it's, he's demonstrated, if you like, um, that at some point, a long, long time ago, that the Sphinx um, had been sort of weathered by massive amounts of, of rain and water. Now, if you think about Egypt, you know, covered in water, it's just, you know, they just don't go together, you know. Um, but at some point, um, we know um, from the wearing on the um, on the sink itself, we know that at, that at some point there must have been a lot of rain. Now, if that's the case, then that actually throws back the age of the Sphinx far beyond what we think about now, you know, just a few thousand years. Um, other researchers who've also followed this angle of using uh, water wearing to understand, um, you know, how long ago the Sphinx might have actually been built and some researchers have suggested sort of like 10 or uh, 12,000 years BC now if that is true and there's no reason to to deny it um, I think that would push the human civilization um, you know way back in time and and history would be sort of thrown off its head you know uh, what was going on in Egypt that there would be so much rainfall? Because we do know the rainfall happened. And as far as the age mm -hmm. of the Sphinx is concerned, conventional Egyptologists have their own ideas. And they were, their main argument against Robert Schock was it was a, it was a total, it would have been 12,000 years ago, totally alone in the world. We've never found anything else, any other, mm -hmm. a, a, any other sophisticated constructions. Then we found Gobekli Tepe, where you have go, you've been to Gobekli Tepe, as I recall. Or have you? Mm -hmm. No, maybe not. Oh, well, no, I haven't, no. Yeah, okay, no, well, no, and in no, any no. case, which is that age, meaning that there was a lot going on back there. Uh, mm -hmm. Now, uh, so... What was it? A was there a flood? What what caused this all this rainfall? Do you know? Well, well, the, the, what the crux of it um, really is that um, because we know that there wasn't the massive amounts of rain um, that would need would be needed to um, to weather the um, the Sphinx so much. We could only um, be able to see all this wearing um, if um, we're talking about the massive amounts of rain um, around about ten, twelve thousand years ago. That means we're pushing back, you know, the uh, the mindset, if you like, of the people of that, that era. You know, they were far, far more um, advanced than a lot of people think. Um, so that sort of brings up, well, you know, did it end at 12,000 BC? Could it have gone back 15,000 BC? Who knows? But what it, but, but the wet, the, the water wearing on the Sphinx does demonstrate that the Sphinx is older than most mainstream, um, figures in that, in the, that, uh, arena, if you like, um, would say so. So it was a, it was a time of 
obviously a time of upheaval and a very strange time. And when I say strange, I mean the people who built Gobekli Tepe built all of those incredible sculptures and structures and then spent mm-hmm. apparently about a thousand years burying them. We're sort of going, I'm sort of diverting. So if you don't have any thoughts about it, we'll just go on down another road. But fascinating. Go ahead. No, I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, I think one of the most important things is that when you look at all these these massive structures like the 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 pyramids in Egypt, the key ones, um, and if you look at um, like the the Baalbek stones and things like this, the one thing that makes us different to to people now is that they seem to have been able to move massive things um, in a way that we cannot do it even now. And and it should be the other way around. You know, the, the more and more a civilization develops, it should get more advanced. But it, it's the other way around. You know, we're the ones scratching our heads as to how all these stones were moved. And and we don't know it, how to do it, but somebody did thousands of years before. And that's that's one of the sort of more most intriguing things, you know, as to how something like that could actually be achieved now getting back to the mayan story could it Mm -hmm. be that there was somebody else here with us at that time you've been on ancient aliens and somebody else who could do this and we've they left and let took the secret with them or from most of us obviously they they did Mm -hmm. not take the secret from the uh that tribe in africa the the what are they the Mm -hmm. the garak tribe but Mm -hmm. from most of us well, that's an interest, interesting uh, angle, Whitley. I'll tell you for why. Because um, one of the themes that goes throughout this story, uh, by looking at the old texts and the stories and so on, um, one of the things that you find is that it seems that at various times, there somebody, whether it's extraterrestrials or highly advanced humans, but at some point... Um, it's, it's as if at some point um, that, you know, we've, we've, we're in a situation where we've got um, these massive stones and then the technology, if you like, or the building stops. It's almost as if um, somebody has hidden the way to do this or destroyed it uh, for whatever reason we don't know. But somebody at some point... Um, essentially put us all in a situation where we'd lost it. That technology um, was lost. And it's only really now that um, acoustic technology that is coming back now and realizing how we could do possibly what they could do also, but way back. Um, but But this angle of somebody wiping out the the science the technology because they don't want the next generations to know and that's what it seems to be um it makes me wonder well why why did some race of super people or whatever why would they want to prevent forthcoming civilizations um stopping the present um civilizations for, for having that technology 
Well, you know, that's a fascinating question and mm-hmm. an important one. And it gets back to this whole idea of demons or what Linda Moulton Howe talks about, which is essentially a war over us. Mm-hmm. Like, could there be anything in any of that? I mean, that maybe somebody lost and they 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 got defeated and mm-hmm. we were left with the bad guys could that have happened mm-hmm. and they don't want well, to tell, they don't want to give us any secrets of course mm-hmm. well yeah that's a good point and i think it kind of parallels some of the stuff bob lazar said about people's souls and containers and things like that you know and um, which gets a bit kind of creepy you know manipulating people's souls and things like that yeah but it, it's real. It's real creepy. But oh, I know. It's totally know you've, real. Yeah. And, yeah you know, we've been a lot of that. Something was done to us, I think, that caused us to become soul blind. Mm-hmm. And, we, and so we can't. I remember actually. Yeah, I remember actually when um, communion came out, and I read that, and um, and you know, one of these greys, one of the entities, said that. Um, you know, we recycle souls. I remember that put the hair on my arms, you know, when I heard that. So, you well, know, it's almost do. like, I'll tell you what it makes me think of, um, like the Matrix. You know, it's um, it's sort of, um, you know, we, we're not really sure of the reality of the life we live in, you know. Some of the ones that came to the cabin used to call themselves soul techs. And speaking of technology... Free Dreamlanders, folks, uh, use your technology to go over to unknowncountry.com and drop a subscription on us. We could use it. <clears throat> we really could. As I say every week and have been saying every week for what feels like about 300 years, but it's not been quite that long. Uh, okay. So we'll be right back. We're talking to Nick Redfern. His latest is how anti-gravity built the pyramids. Nick Redfern, fortian.blogspot.com is his internet home. We'll be right back. Every week, Unknown Country subscribers go way out on the cutting edge and get fascinating first-hand information that you are not going to find anywhere else. Listen to Dr. Roger Lear tell about his latest implant surgery. Now, I said, what is it that you found so fascinating this time? They said, well, we found that the metal has biological tissue growing into it. Now, there were two scientists there from MIT. They had never seen anything like this before in their life, and they said virtually this is impossible. Being an Unknown Country subscriber makes you part of a very special community. You can't get more for less, not anywhere. The information we offer is rare and precious, and you also get Whitley Strieber's powerful meditation and many, many more. Go to unknowncountry.com and click on that subscribe tab right now. We're talking to Nick Redfern. How Anti-Gravity Built the Pyramids, and many, many others. Now, talk about, let's talk about the, the, what was going on at Giza. Can you tell, I mean, because there's all kinds of stories about the pyramid, the pyramids and the, and the building of the pyramids, and they're explained away about every five years. Someone else, someone else comes up with a new idea that, that will satisfy the unwary. Yeah. But where, what's the well, truth yeah. here? 
Well, I'm not sure you know we'll, we'll ever get fully 100% all the answers, but I, I'm sure um, you know we are going in the right direction right now. Now, if you look at the um, you know the the Giza uh, pyramids and you look at those stones, I mean. Those stones themselves are multi-tonned. You know, they're, the stones themselves, you know, never mind just the, the, the weight of the pyramid itself, you know, the stones themselves are multi-tonned. Now, if you, you know, you look at a picture of a photograph of somebody standing at the bottom of, you know, either of those, any of the, the Giza pyramids, um, you'll, you'll, the first thing that would sort of come into your mind is that how on earth could that multi-ton stone be right at the top of that pointed pyramid? And the fact is nobody really has got an answer um, uh, or rather um, the, a lot of the world of, the, uh, world of science just won't address it. And, and this is where... Um, how we kind of look into this issue of what is known as acoustic levitation. Now, a friend of mine, uh, Marie Jones, um, she put together a really sort of easy and understandable um, way this works. And I'll just read it to you. And this is how Marie um, describes it. it. It is two opposing sound frequencies with interfering sound waves, thus creating a resonant zone that allows the levitation to occur. So, in other words, basically, you know, if you've ever picked up a magnet and another one and you push them against each other, they, get, they push each other away. And it's kind of like that. And you can, but with acoustic levitation, you, what we can do now is to raise little objects Oh, and they are little objects so far, like the size of um, like a coin. Um, and by using uh, opposing um, acoustic um, angles, you can raise something into the sky. And so we're talking about acoustics. And, and what do we have, you know, with the little dwarf? We had a um, whistling. And, and again, like I said, I think these were just sort of legends pushed down through the centuries we, and they got distorted but the the primary theme of acoustics has always been there and um and and what marie said um is a perfect example of how we can uh, now raise very very small um pieces of anything um and the you and using directed acoustic waves and and it can be done um but what we cannot do is is right is rise like um a four ton block of rock <laughs> you know we're not we're nowhere near that but the intriguing thing is that somebody once was there was there was there yeah well, I mean, they may be around still, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Not, not necessarily a was. <laughs> right. Well, we get back to the question of, you know, there's some, obviously somebody is here right now. There's no question about that. 
And which is weird, but true. I mean, I live with them. Thousands of people live with them in various ways. And some of them are not nice. Some of them are wonderful. In fact, I separate the non-human from the human in the world of the disembodied. And the human part of it is great. I mean, that's where I'm in contact with my wife, for goodness sakes, which is just the most beautiful thing you could imagine. And yet there are other entities. Uh, you mentioned those, uh, I believe the, um, during, we, when we were talking about the defense department, we mentioned those sort of white entities. We've had that in our lives since before communion, Anne and I have, and they're not pleasant at all. They're dangerous. I think they are demons. Frankly, I think there is a demonic presence. I don't think they're necessarily physical, but they are corrosive. Be the best way to describe it. Uh, let's. I want to concentrate for a few minutes, and then we're going to go. Oh goodness, we're going to go to Tibet. We're going to go to all kinds of places, but I want to concentrate for a few minutes. Excuse me. On the platform at Baalbek, because it is. So huge. It, it, even what we've been talking about with acoustic levitation and stuff, it's hard to believe that it could be like that. That it could have been moved anyway at all. Let's start. What do they say? What are the, they, what are the modern archaeologists say moved it? What do they say it was done? Well, I'll tell you what they don't say. They don't say it's at, um, acoustic levitation. You know, no. I mean, people... I mean, I mean, a lot of people, unfortunately, have just they just go down the, the simplistic angle. You know, oh, it's um, rollers and uh, rope and things. Well, that, that doesn't mean anything, you know. And it's, it's just a case of sort of washing it away. I mean, I'll give you a perfect example, uh, Whitley. Um, in Baalbek in the Becca Valley in the Middle East. Um, there are, and there's actually, there's four um, massive, gigantic stones. Um, now, all four of them um, weigh more than 1,000 tons. Now, the one that's the heaviest has got um, one of these blocks is 1,650 tons. And, and it's been moved across sand or it was raised you know just into the air it wouldn't necessarily have to go you know a, a mile in the sky i mean to move it you could perhaps even just lift it two feet and push it like a little a little boat on the water you know but if you think about that 1650 tons and that's just one block and if you have a look um, at uh, pictures of the um, the stones of Baalbek, um, there's plenty of pictures online, um, and on some of the pictures you'll see, you know, people standing next time and uh, next to them, and so you know when you when you've got these gigantic stones and next to it it looks like a little ant and you realise it's a person, you know, um, and then. You, you realize how on earth did we move a 1,650-ton stone across 
the landscape. And nobody has an answer. No, there just they, is they, not they, an answer. They don't. No conventional no, apart answer from is possible. something like this. Apart from acoustic levitation, really. Or some other form of levitation. I mean, it could be something else. Yes, yeah. Yeah, that, that's a good point, because I do say in the book as well, you know, that there may be other types of levitation, but I think it's, it still comes down um, as levitation. So. You know, in the part of the book where you talk about Morris Jessup, and you can tell mm-hmm. us in a second exactly who he is, uh, but you make a, he makes a point that it all ended so suddenly. Can you tell us about who he was and why he would say that this ability to move stones like this seems to have ended very suddenly? Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I mean, Morris Jessup was a fascinating guy. He was a scientist, um, um, someone who was fascinated by levitation and we're talking now back in the 1950s early 1950s and um and he also had a a fascination um for ancient civilizations and and the mysteries of civilization ancient civilizations as well and um and he came to believe also that there was no way that these gigantic stones could be moved under normal human ways. And bear in mind, this was the early 1950s. Well, that's sort of um, the, in the period from late 40s onward, um, you know, where we had the beginning of the UFO um, phenomenon starting. And Jessup came to believe that the, the 1940s, 1950s era um, UFO presence was connected to the ancient mysteries um, that we've, we've been talking about today, you know, these gigantic blocks of stone. And so he traveled around very much of um, um, South America, um, Central America, and going, you know, here, there, and everywhere, trying to find out, you know, some of the the most uh, sort of biggest stones and um, how did they get them, you know, placed here or placed there, you know, 50 feet up, that kind of thing. And the more and more that Jessup began to look into all of this, the more that he realized that our history was not what it appeared to be. And, you know, um, on that note... And that Nick, I'm mm-hmm. so sorry to interrupt you, but I had That's no right. choice. We've come to the end of the... F- first segment of the show for our free segment and i have to cut it off here folks we're going down a fascinating trail uh so subscribers do stay with us because the morris jessup jessup story gets well you'll see it gets very very deep and very very weird free listeners thank you as always for being with us on dreamland we've been talking to nick redfern his book how anti-gravity built the pyramids and you can reach him on nick redfern 14 dot blogspot dot com you've been listening to dreamland be sure to tune in again next week dreamland is brought to you by unknowncountry.com and its family of subscribers 
Our theme music is The O of Pleasure by Ray Lynch. Unknown Country was founded by Ann Streber. Our news editor is Matthew Frizzell. Our coordinator is Amy Safrankova. Whitley Streber is your Dreamland host. And I'm your announcer, Ted Alexander.